Did you know the reason why male dogs lift their legs when they pee is so that they seem bigger to other dogs that come by? Or how about this? Did you know that the dog that played Toto in The Wizard of Oz actually made more money per week than any of the individuals playing the munchkins? And even more surprising, Judy Garland made the least out of all the principal characters in The Wizard of Oz. How about this one? Did you know that the island of St. Bart's was named after Christopher Columbus's brother, Bartholomew? Crazy, huh? See, I love this kind of stuff because they're widely unknown facts about events and people that we seemingly know a lot about. I mean, everybody's heard the story of Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but we never hear about his brother Bartholomew, and yet it's documented in history. And these are the kind of things that I like learning about. I like learning about the things that were kind of overlooked and that weren't in the mainstream history growing up. So every time I learn a fact like this, I feel compelled to share it with people. And usually they find it pretty interesting too. So then I decided to delve just a little bit deeper and go into these interesting facts and find out even more interesting side facts that coincide with the original fact. So that's kind of how we have this podcast. I take a fact that I've learned about and I do some research on it while searching for some of the more trivial facts that surround the topic and share with you my scattered curiosities. I think that my favorite city in the entire world has got to be Amsterdam. Now, I know what you're thinking. Everybody has preconceived notions when they hear Amsterdam. They think wooden shoes, coffee shops, cheese wheels, or the red light district. And yes, of course, those things are all unique and interesting characteristics of this urban wonderland. But beyond all that, it's just a beautiful city. After two major floods in 1173, the people who lived on the Amstel River built a bridge over the river and a dam across it. Amsterdam became the official name in 1327, and ever since, it has continued to be one of the most cultured places in the world. And I live in Manhattan. There are over 50 museums in this city, which is inhabited with citizens from around the globe, speaking multiple languages and practicing different religions. And, of course, the Dutch people. These tall, beautiful people. Statistically, the tallest people in the world. And you'll never find a place that's more tolerant or progressive. In 2001, the Netherlands became the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. And while it's super progressive, you're still in this old-world international city that's teeming with Muslims and Jews and Protestants and Christians and Catholics. And the people are Dutch, French, Belgian, English, American, Canadian. I mean, you have the whole mix of just about any kind of person that you could think of. And you have the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. Ik sal hanhaven. I will uphold. Please forgive my terrible Dutch. I'm afraid you're going to have to suffer quite a bit of it through this particular podcast, but I do have my Google Translate with me, so hopefully my pronunciations won't be too murderous. But this motto of the Netherlands is a pretty accurate way to describe the attitude of its inhabitants. Everybody is just kind of doing their own thing. In fact, in Amsterdam, most people don't even have curtains in their windows. You can just look right in and see folks living their lives, paying you no mind at all on the sidewalk. Sometimes the Dutch can seem rude, but I think that they're just very straightforward and modest and they don't want to get involved in anybody else's business. The Netherlands, by the way, means low countries. 
A lot of people incorrectly refer to the Netherlands as Holland, but Holland is just an area of the Netherlands, not to be confused with the entire country. While calling the Netherlands Holland is generally accepted, it's not technically correct. Holland is a region and a former province on the western coast. The former county of Holland is basically the new provinces of North Holland and South Holland, which includes some of the biggest cities, like Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and The Hague. So, calling the Netherlands Holland is a little like calling Great Britain England. And the only reason that we do that is because in the 1500s and the 1600s, the province of Holland was the dominant province. That's where all the tulip bulbs were grown, in tulip mania, in the windmills, in the breweries, or browries. So when you're referring to the country as a whole, it's called the Netherlands, which is the low countries. And that makes sense because 30% of this low country is below sea level. Remember that, that'll play in later in our story. One of the reasons why windmills are often associated with the Netherlands is because they were originally used to help pump water from the lowlands back into the rivers and past the dikes for farming. There are over a thousand windmills in the Netherlands, and some of them are still being used today to drain water. But going back to Amsterdam, it really is kind of a great way to introduce yourself to Europe. It was the first place I ever visited outside of America, other than going to Niagara Falls in Canada. But let's face it, Canada is not a crazy culture shock when you leave from America. I mean, I can use Canadian pennies here sometimes if a cashier isn't looking very closely, so it's not too tremendously different. Probably the first thing that you notice walking around the city of Amsterdam for the first time are the Amsterdamerche which are these reddish-brown traffic bollards that are lined along the sidewalks that separate the street from the sidewalk, kind of where the curb would be. And you see them every two feet or so. And on them, there's the three crosses of St. Andrews. They look like three X's on top of each other. And you can see them on the Amsterdam coat of arms. Now, what I think is interesting about this is they're trying to get rid of them. I guess since the 80s, you can buy them as the city has been removing them. Although I find them to be pretty great because they help protect you on the sidewalk from the narrow European streets that are full of cars and also full of bikes. There are bikes everywhere. The Netherlands is a huge bike culture and they are every bit as much of a moving vehicle as the actual moving vehicles and the trams. The tram network in Amsterdam has been around since 1875 when they opened their first horse-drawn tramway network that linked Plantage to Liedersplein. And some of the routes of the original horse tram are still being used today with route 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 9, 10, and 13. A scattered curiosity about the trams? In 1922, they installed mailboxes on the back of every tram car because they eventually ended at Central Station, which was right next to the post office. So you could hop on, send your mail on your commute to work, and be sure that your letter would be postmarked that day. So it was pretty convenient. They got rid of the mailboxes in 1971, which seems kind of early. You would have thought that they would have gotten rid of them like in the 2000s when snail mail was really starting to go on the way out. But uh, interesting stuff. Other things you notice are the cobblestone streets and the Biscoff cookies you get with your coffee and the street food. See, living in New York City, I love trying street food. You know, the dollar pizza that you get. Uh, shawarma, uh, the hot dogs. But in Amsterdam, you can get these frites, which are French fries, and you can get them in this peanut sauce. Or if you really want to go European, you put mayo on them. Oh, it's so good. And then you can get these herring in the street, you know, herring, the fish. And they serve them up to you, and you just put them right in your mouth. They're oily and salty, and oh, they're just so delicious. And then crepes and waffles and pancakes. Don't even get me started on the pancakes. Gotta go have them for yourself. I don't think I could even describe how good they are. And the canals. 
the beautiful canals. If you're unfamiliar with Amsterdam, it uh, has been compared to Venice. Um, you could literally get, well, I shouldn't say everywhere, but you can get most anywhere um, by boat if you wanted to, and you have that choice to take a water taxi versus taking a streetcar or riding a bike, depending on the weather. By the way, the canal construction started in Amsterdam in 1613, and the South Canal construction done in Amsterdam began in 1656. But after you get over the initial shock of different kind of money, different language, signage that's not quite the same, looking out for bikes, you start to notice a lot of things that are really familiar. And you begin to make the connection of, you know, of the old world to the new world. As many of you are probably already aware, especially those of you who are They Might Be Giants fans, New York City used to be known as New Amsterdam. And in fact, the whole Hudson Valley region all the way up to Albany was known as New Netherland. Because in 1609, the Dutch government sent Henry Hudson, who the river is named after, on an expedition. And by 1613, the colony of New Amsterdam is established. You can still see and feel all the influences from that settlement today. Did you know that we get the word cookie and boss and book and house and pen and street all from Dutch? In fact, other places that are in New York City, we still use the names that they gave it. Brooklyn, Wall Street or Wall Strat, the Bronx, named after Jonas Bronx, Staten Island, Harlem, Coney Island, which means Rabbit Island, Flushing. And if you're in the Hudson River Valley in upstate New York, you'll see places named Catskill, Peekskill, Kill Van Cull. And in Dutch, the word kill means stream. Stuyvesant. Have you ever heard of Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn? Well, Stuy is short for Peter Stuyvesant, who was the last Dutch director general of New Netherland before England took over. So you start to notice all of these connections and you realize, wow, America would be a very different place if it weren't for the Dutch. Without the Dutch, the world never gets Anne Frank, Rembrandt, Van Gogh, Christian Huygens, who invented the pendulum clock, Gerard Kuiper, who the Kuiper belt is named after. He didn't discover it, by the way. He just thought that there were small planets and comets out in that area past Neptune at one point in time in the universe, but he figured that gravitational influences of planets like Pluto would have actually scattered all that stuff in the interstellar space. So it's kind of ironic that the Kuiper belt should be named after a guy that didn't really think it was there anymore. Another scattered curiosity about Gerard Kuiper... In 1958, he worked with Carl Sagan on a classified military project that was labeled A-119, which was an Air Force plan to set off nuclear weapons on the moon. He also discovered carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of Mars. And there's also astronomer Jan Oort, who the Oort cloud is named after. And the Oort cloud is even further out in space than the Kuiper Belt. Dutch. And how about these Americans? Cornelius Vanderbilt, Cecil B. DeMille, Bruce Springsteen, Dick Van Dyke, Rebecca Romaine, Whitney Houston. All of these people are Dutch Americans. Thomas Edison. And presidents, too. Teddy Roosevelt, Warren G. Harding, FDR, and both of the Bushes are all of Dutch descent. In fact, Martin Van Buren was the first president whose first language was not English, but Dutch. So you can see all of these people have made an impact on our world, and all of them have some sort of linkage to the Dutch. In fact, in 1803, when America is trying to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase, we don't have enough money to cover it, and the Dutch loan us money so that we can make the purchase. And the receipt is still there. You can go see it at the ING Group, which is in Amsterdam. I mean, how cool is that? So, a very different country you're looking at if we never have the Dutch. 
It's notable because the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam was only around for about 40 years. I mean, in 1609 was the first exploration. In 1613, it was established. In 1626, Peter Minuet supposedly buys the island of Manhattan from Indians for 60 guilders, which is roughly $24. Then by the time 1664 comes along, the Dutch have given New Netherlands to the British after the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and give up New Amsterdam for Tsunami, which they hold on to for 287 years. So within 40 years, all of these things have become part of our American institution. Sinterklaas, Santa Claus, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, even the idea of freedom of religion, all of these come from Dutch descendants. Some of you might be wondering why you haven't really heard a lot else about Henry Hudson other than the Hudson Bay and the Hudson River. Well, one of the main reasons for that is by 1611, he's dead as far as the history books are concerned. Just a couple of years before Henry's famous journey up the river that will one day bear his name, he had actually sailed two failed missions for English merchants, which both got blocked by ice. The first time out, he was hired to find a way to Asia using a northern sailing lane during the summer season when the sea ice was thought to be melted away. It wasn't. Nor was it on his second mission when he was sent to India by way of sailing over Russia. It was the Dutch East India Company of the Netherlands who hired him for the hat trick to find an eastern route to Asia by sailing from Amsterdam over the Arctic Circle where he got stopped in ice again and had to turn around again. Only this time, when Henry reached Norway, he instead decided to check out a passage through North America that he had heard existed while they were stocking up the ship back in the Amsterdam harbor. And this new course brought him through Nova Scotia, Cape Cod, Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Bay, the North River, and finally New York Bay which was actually first navigated by an Italian, Giovanni de Verrazzano, who the bridge is named after, 85 years prior. Hudson arrived at his river on September 11th and started to sail up it the following morning, reaching Albany 10 days later before setting back towards Europe. Henry pulled into Dartmouth, England on November 7th and upon his arrival, the authorities grabbed him because they wanted to read his log. Now, remember, this entire area that Hudson explored was all greatly unknown to Europe. So it was like top secret classified information that every nation was eager to exploit. But Henry managed to sneak his log to the Dutch ambassador who smuggled it out of England and shortly thereafter he was released, and Henry Hudson went back to the Hudson Bay area to explore some more, this time for the British East India Company, even though England had so recently tried to jail him. And in November of 1610, Hudson's ship Discovery got trapped in ice, and he and his crew had to winter ashore. Hudson wanted to use the ship to explore more of the Hudson Bay, but his crew had other ideas, and they mutiny Henry Hudson and his son and about seven other crew members, and they left them in an open boat with clothes and provisions right in the middle of the Hudson Bay. Now, being marooned in Hudson Bay doesn't sound as bad as, say, being marooned in the middle of the ocean, but remember... Hudson Bay is twice the size of the Baltic Sea, and none of them were ever heard from again. Only eight of the 13 mutineers make it back to Europe, 
and they're arrested, but nobody is punished because they also have that valuable knowledge of the New World and the sailing routes. All eight men were charged with murder and acquitted, instead of mutiny, which would have meant execution. Henry Hudson is a fascinating character in his own right. I think I'll do a separate chapter on just him alone, because there are varying facts as to when he was born, the mystery behind his death, and nobody knows for sure what really happened to him. He was just never heard from again. He's even portrayed as a sort of mystic character in Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle. Now, I've been to Amsterdam four times in the past 16 years, and I'm actually planning a fifth trip for next year. And every single time that I go, I always have to explore something new. You know, the first time that you go, you have to go to the Anne Frank House, the Rijksmuseum, the Van Gogh Museum, the Rembrandt House, the Heineken Brewery, a concert at the Paradiso, a tour of the canals, and then a nightcap at a brown cafe or a coffee shop. Every time I go back, I try to explore a new area. And you go out to Ooster Park or the Pip or the Jordan. And those are all just parts of Amsterdam. But then after you get comfortable with that, you realize that you can check out the rest of the country. So you get on a train and you go to Harlem, which means home on a little dune. And because it's on a dune, it's good at filtering the water that as early as 1575, there were already 50 breweries in Harlem. It also enjoys the nickname Blomenstad, or Flower City, because Harlem is the center of tulip bulb growing in the Netherlands. After Harlem, you venture out a little bit further into the Netherlands, and you go to The Hague, which is the capital of South Holland, and it's the seat of the Dutch government. It's not the capital of the Netherlands, though. That honor belongs to Amsterdam. However, most of the embassies in the Netherlands are in The Hague. Also, the Mortishaus Museum, home to Vermeer's Girl with the Pearl Earring Painting. And after The Hague, you just keep traveling further and further into the country. You really start to get a feel for the place, and it's exciting. And you don't just have to stop at the borders of the Netherlands. I mean, Amsterdam is the fourth largest port in all of Europe, and it's a gateway to the rest of Europe. And you can get on a train and go to Berlin or Paris, and they don't even check your passport. You just get on and you go. It's awesome. And it's made traveling in a foreign country not so scary. So I use Amsterdam as a kind of a home base. I'm familiar with it. Then I branch out to some place I haven't been before, absorb a little bit of that culture, see how it connects to things I know and am comfortable with, and all of a sudden, the world is an even smaller place that you feel more part of than you ever did before. So of course, after 16 years of going to Amsterdam, I have a ton of stories to tell about adventures that I've had there. But my favorite story that involves the Netherlands has nothing to do with any of my trips, has nothing to do with coffee shops, has nothing to do with the red light district, has nothing to do with almost getting killed by a bicyclist because I wasn't paying attention, has nothing to do with any of those things. No, my favorite story that has to do with the Netherlands dates way back. I'm going to use a year we're all familiar with as a starting point for our story. 1492. Now Columbus, as you know, was financed by the king and queen of Spain. And Spain at this point in time is a major player on the world stage and is predominantly Roman Catholic. And there's something else going on in Spain right now. The Spanish Inquisition. And the king and queen are basically forcing Protestants and Jews and Muslims to conversion or exile. Now, let's move ahead to the year 1555, don't worry, the Spanish Inquisition is still going on, and it will keep going on until 1813 when Napoleon finally abolishes it and the Holy Roman Empire. But for now, the King of Spain is this guy named Philip II, who is the son of King Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, and Isabella. So we have this young king who's known as Felipe el Prudente, which means Philip the Prudent. 
and he has territory on every known continent to Europe, including the Philippines, which are named for him. During his reign, Spain was called the empire on which the sun never sets, which is ironic because during his reign, the state of Spain went bankrupt five times in 1557, 1560, 1569, 1575, and 1596. Philip is a devout Catholic, and he finds Protestantism to be heresy. So he's persecuting people who aren't practicing Catholicism in all of his colonies, including the Netherlands, which, at the time, is comprised of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Belgium, Luxembourg, northern France, and western Germany. The people of the Netherlands just wanted to practice their own religion without government getting involved. Sound familiar? So Philip II finds himself in a predicament where the Dutch provinces object to the taxes that he's imposing on them, and they're demanding that the Spanish army leave their lands. So in 1559, Philip II appoints William the Silent as Stadtholder of Holland, Zealand, and Utrecht. Now, Stadtholder is like the governor. And William the Silent is also called the Prince of Orange. Something that you have to understand as we go through this story, Prince of Orange is a title that's been given to many different people throughout history. And it didn't always apply to Holland. It originally started as a title in France. Remember this, because William the Silent will be succeeded by three of his sons by the end of our story. So when I say Prince of Orange, I'll try to clarify which Prince of Orange, but starting here, William the Silent is the Prince of Orange, a title that is used to this very day. Since 1983, whoever is on the throne is referred to as either the Prince or Princess of Orange. William is from the family of Orange Nassau, which is why the East Coast has Orange County and Nassau County. There's even a statue of William the Silent at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It was built in 1928. Also in 2008, asteroid number 12151 was named for him, Orange Nassau. And the national color of the Netherlands is orange, which is evident when you see their sports jerseys. But getting back to 1559 and the Prince of Orange, William the Silent doesn't directly oppose Spain at this time, but he's troubled by the recent treatment of Protestants throughout the Spanish colonies. On his first assignment, he sent out with the Duke of Alva, or Alba, of Spain. Now, the Duke of Alva is another one of these hand-me-down titles, but on Spain's side. There are several Duke of Alvas throughout history, but the one that we're going to concentrate on now is the Duke of Alva III. You might be saying to yourself, Slow down there, Albert Einstein. William the Silent? Why is he called William the Silent? Here might be one reason. So, he's on this first assignment with the Duke of Alva, and they've both been sent to France as hostages to fulfill a treaty. You know, when two kingdoms sign a pact and they exchange hostages to make sure that each side honors their part of the deal. William the Silent and the Duke of Alva are in France on a hunting trip with King Henry II. And while they're on this trip, they get to chatting. And King Henry starts talking about this secret understanding that he has between himself and King Philip II to exterminate Protestants in the Netherlands, France, and the entire known Christian world. The king thought that Alva and William were both in on this plan, but only Alva was aware of it, and William says nothing, keeping this knowledge to himself. That might be one reason why he's called William the Silent. But William wouldn't stay silent for long. Five years later, in 1564, John Calvin, the Protestant pastor from whom we get the increasingly popular religion of Calvinism, dies. And William the Silent openly opposes the Holy Roman Emperor's anti-Protestant treatment of the Spanish Netherlands. Though William remains a Catholic, 
He asserts that the government should have no say in a person's religion, and he puts a confederacy of noblemen together who request an end to the persecution of the Protestants in the Netherlands. And the response from Felipe el Prudente was the Bjeldenstorm. Bonus curiosity, Christopher Marlowe, Galileo Galilee, and William Shakespeare are all born in this year. It's now 1566. It's the year that Nostradamus dies, and there's a new pope, the 225th pope, Pope Pius V. And King Philip II is a pretty popular guy. He even has the support of Queen Mary of Scots, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. Later that year, his face will be minted on Spain's gold escudo. Now, as I was saying before, Philip II's response to William the Silent's confederacy of noblemen was the Bjeldenstorm. And I never explained what that was. It was Spain sending soldiers into the churches of the Netherlands and destroying everything that wasn't Catholic. And Dutch retaliation began almost immediately. And the Spanish soldiers fought back while this proud, rebellious, defiant attitude was starting to spark uprisings across the Netherlands. By the time you get to March 13th in the city of Oosterweel, which is near Antwerp, the Bjeldenstorm is happening there too with one major difference. This time, the Spanish General Beauvoir takes some of these radical Calvinists in the Netherlands as his prisoners and kills them resulting in a huge uprising. This is the beginning of the Eighty Years' War, also famously known as the Dutch Revolt. The first few years were pretty rough for the Dutch. In fact, I'd say the whole war was pretty rough for the Dutch. Spain basically dominated them for the majority of those 80 years. Now, the Duke of Alva sets up the Council of Troubles in 1567 to judge anybody who rebelled against the state of Spain, and William of Orange was one of about 10,000 people who was called on to appear in Brussels to be judged. But he never shows up. And as a result, the following February, William the Silent's eldest son, Philip William, who's 13 and away at university, is taken as a hostage and kept as a loyal Catholic subject of Spain. William the Silent never sees this son again, and Philip William stays in Spain until he returns to the Netherlands almost three decades later. Are you confused with all the Philips and Williamses yet? Wait. On May 23, 1568, the Dutch score their first victory in the Eighty Years' War with the Battle of Helleherle, but get crushed five months later in the Battle of Jodania, even though they had the Spanish forces outnumbered. But let's move forward to the year 1572, because it's a big year for the Dutch. In fact, the next two years are big years for the Dutch. Now, 1572 is a leap year, and on March 1st, Queen Elizabeth I of England bans a Dutch group of sailors called the Sea Beggars from English harbors in an effort to please Philip II. One month later, the Sea Beggars capture the port city of Brielle, starting an uprising against the Spanish in Holland and Zealand, and this leads to the Dutch Republic. Now, fast forward to June 25th, the same year, the Sea Beggars capture the city of Gorkum, and they capture some Catholic priests and jail them. And on July 9th, they hang 19 of those Catholic priests, who were labeled the Martyrs of Gorkum, Ibriel. Then in November, in the city of Narden, the Dutch try to negotiate a surrender with the Spanish, and they have this big feast and they invite the Spanish army, and everybody sits down, and they wine and dine together. And then it becomes the Red Wedding. And for any of you Game of Thrones fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. Because what happens here is basically the same thing. They have this huge feast, and they drink, and they dance, and they make music. And then at the end, the Spanish kill 3,000 of the Dutch people. Women. Children. Not just soldiers, normal people. Ten days later, 
the Siege of Harlem breaks out and lasts seven months, ending with the city surrendering to the Dutch and Spain giving orders to sack cities across the Netherlands. And the Spanish army obeys and proceeds forward in the direction of Amsterdam. Now, before I continue, I want to do one of my scattered curiosities here and and take a second to talk about a group that I just mentioned a minute ago, the Sea Beggars, because there really are another fascinating part of history that at least I hadn't heard much about that maybe you haven't either. You should check them out. Um, They're portrayed in Cecilia Holland's novel, The Sea Beggars, and uh, that actually features the Battle of Oosterweel, so you can check that out. But there are some great stories that have to do with the Sea Beggars. There's the Battle of the Scheldt in 1574, and the Sea Beggars come up alongside the Spanish ships, and they board them and fight them and take over their ships, and that's how the Dutch got the island of Zealand. And then in the Battle of Gibraltar in 1607, you have 26 Dutch ships, and they surprise attack a Spanish fleet of 21 ships in the Bay of Gibraltar. And it's over with in almost four hours, and the Spanish ships are destroyed. Check out some of the names of these Dutch ships, because they're totally awesome. You have, and again, forgive my Dutch, I'm going to try this freehand, De Tiger, the Tiger, De Zeehond, the Seal, De Griffon, the Griffin, De Rootlu, the Red Lion, De Gudenlu, the Gold Lion, De Zwertebeer, the Black Bear, De Witbeer, the White Bear, De Ockenster, that one I probably messed up, De Ockenster, the Morning Star. And after they had destroyed these Spanish ships and there are Spanish soldiers in the water trying to swim away, they shot all the Spanish soldiers who were trying to swim away like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. By the way, jumping into water to avoid gunfire, like you see in the movies, is technically possible, but you have to be three to eight feet under for water's resistance to the bullet to take any kind of effect. The Dutch will end up losing Gibraltar in 1621. But while we're in 1573... The Sea Beggars are a great Dutch team to root for. Go Orange! But back to where we left off, the Spanish troops were heading towards Amsterdam. And on the way, the town of Alkmaar is under attack by the Duke of Alva's son, Don Fadrique of Spain. And the citizens of Alkmaar ask the Dutch Prince of Orange for help. And he decides to do something about it. And what he does is he decides to open the floodgates of the dikes. And he decides to flood the city. Now, as I said before, 30% of the Netherlands is below sea level, so flooding it is no problem. And Alkmaar, which is the central part of the country, decides to flood. And they break the levees and dikes that keep the North Sea controlled, and it comes in and floods everything. And a bunch of other towns decide to do this too. And by the time that the Spanish arrive, they can't march because there's water everywhere. So they decide to head back to their ships to go around and hit Amsterdam through the sea. Now, they're hoping that they can get there before winter comes through because if winter comes through before that, they could get stuck in ice and then they would have nowhere to go. But they also saw this as perhaps an advantage because if they got there and it was all ice, well, then they could have their soldiers just march over the ice and walk right up to them. At this time, when they're heading back towards Amsterdam, you have a Dutch fleet who's trying to intercept them, and they get frozen in the Amsterdam harbor. And so, according to plan, the Spanish decide to get up on the ice and start marching towards them. But what happens next is the whole reason for this episode. This is the event, the fact that sparked the idea to do all this research on the Netherlands just leading up to this story. So you have these Spanish soldiers that are marching towards this Dutch vessel. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they see these people moving extremely fast on the ice. And they're like phantoms. They come sliding through, 
come shoot them with a musket and they go sliding away. And they didn't know what was going on. Well, here's what was happening. The Dutch, who are actually amazing ice skaters at this time, are using this skill to their advantage. They decide to put on ice skates and they skate up to the Spanish and they shoot them and then they skate off and then hide behind an ice wall and reload and go do the whole thing again. And the Spanish are blown away. They don't know what to think of it and they retreat. The Duke of Alva decides to get his hands on a pair of these skates and he goes back to Spain and he asks the king and queen and he says, I need 7,000 pairs of these. And Spain does this. They make his 7,000 skates and they even start giving free skating lessons in Spain. The Duke of Alva said, quote, It was a thing never heard of before today to see a body of musketeers fighting like that on the frozen sea. The reason this is so significant is that in 1572, just one year prior to this event, the first iron skates were made in the Netherlands. Skate is derived from the Dutch word scot, meaning leg bone. Up until this point in history, skating had been done around the world, but they used bones and sticks on the bottom. They didn't use iron to help control sliding over the ice. On top of that, in most places around the world, skating was reserved for the elite, but not in the Netherlands. This land that welcomed everybody of every religion allowed all people to skate. And this open-mindedness paid off for them big time. Because it wasn't just the Dutch soldiers that were skating and attacking. The women and the children joined in as well, who were also skilled skaters and shooters. In light of these events, Philip II declares William the Silent an outlaw and wants him assassinated and he puts a 25,000 crown price on William the Silent's head. William then converts to the Calvinist religion and invades the Netherlands with a Protestant army, but only gains the provinces of Holland and Zealand. And now we just have the many, many battles of the Eighty Years' War. I won't go into detail with all of them, I couldn't possibly, but there are some good ones to note. Let's start in late 1573, on October 11th, at the Battle of Zuiderzee. The Dutch are outnumbered by a Spanish fleet, but overcome them once again with the tactic of boarding the Spanish ship, fighting them hand-to-hand, -hand, and taking possession of the ship, thus adding to their own fleet without having to build more boats. However, unlike the previous Battle of Gibraltar, the Dutch show mercy to their prisoners and let them go. This kind of thing was happening more and more as the war dragged on. So many lives were lost for both the Dutch and the Spanish that when one side had to surrender, the humane thing would be to just let the citizens go in peace instead of slaying everybody. But then let's head to the next battle of war. During October's Siege of Leiden, the Duke of Alva is wreaking havoc as he's done in Narden and Harlem previously. And the Prince of Orange orders the city to be flooded just as they had done in Alkmaar. In fact, the practice of flooding cities was used as a defensive strategy in the Netherlands for hundreds of years, all the way up until airplanes made the tactic obsolete. And as you might imagine, the citizens were not always thrilled with this decision to flood because flooding did damage to their farms and their businesses and homes. But regardless of their wishes, the dikes were broken. In 1575, the bubonic plague is running rampant in Venice, and the states that make up Holland are seriously considering evacuating the Hague because it is weak and unfortified, and many fled to Harlem which is now under Dutch control and heavily promoting the arts, the study of history, and religious tolerance. As a result, French and Flemish people were starting to flood the area as well, with people, not water. Let's skip a few years to January 6, 1579, when a bunch of southern provinces in the Low Country, who are displeased with William the Silent's revolution against Spain, signed the Treaty of Arras, 
which states that they will accept the Catholic governor that is appointed by Spain. In response, the northern provinces signed the Union of Utrecht, which turned 17 northern provinces into a northern state. And the Union of Utrecht says, Each person shall remain free in his religion, and that no one shall be investigated or persecuted because of his religion. Later that year, William the Silent establishes the University of Leiden, the first university in the northern provinces. Two years later, July 26th, independence from Spain is proclaimed in the Netherlands in the act of abjuration from Philip II. Remember the hit that Philip put out on William of Orange? Well, in 1584, someone collected their crowns. He's a Catholic from Burgundy named Balthasar Gerard. What a great name, right? And he shot William the Silent in his home in Delft with a pistol after pursuing him for two years. And just to show how much the Netherlands loved William the Silent, once they caught this Balthasar Gerard, he was punished horrifically. And listen to what they did to this guy. They burned off his right hand with a hot iron. They quartered and disemboweled him. And then they ripped his heart right out and threw it in his face. And then they cut off his head. And the assassination of William the Silent was the first head of state ever to be assassinated by a pistol. After William's death, Queen Elizabeth I of England takes the United Provinces of the Netherlands under her protection and she sends 5,000 infantry and 1,000 soldiers to the Netherlands. William the Silent is then buried in the Delft Newkirk, which means New Church. And this is a tradition that still lasts to this day. Whenever the prince or princess of Orange dies, they're buried at the Delft Newkirk, New Church. Now, Delft is a city in southern Holland, which is north of Rotterdam, south of The Hague, and has the royal house of Orange Nassau. It's also the home of Delft Pottery. You've probably seen Delft pottery before, even if you don't know right off the top of your head what it is. There are these blue and white porcelain-looking teapots, plates, and scenic tiles from the town of Delft. In fact, that blue color is even called Delft blue. These tin-glazed pots started to appear in the 16th century, around the time that we've been discussing. And it was a process first developed in China during the 14th century with porcelain, but this Dutch version of porcelain was cheaper to make. A scattered curiosity, six years after the 80 Years' War ended, there was a massive blast in the town of Delft after a gunpowder store exploded, killing over 100 and injuring thousands. And a bunch of the breweries there had been destroyed in the tragedy, and as the town rebuilt... Those old breweries were being replaced with establishments that were making Delft pottery. Some familiar art that can be seen on Delft pottery are windmills, fishing boats, seascapes, and landscapes. My mom loves this stuff. Everybody's mom loves this stuff. Then the fall of Antwerp happens in 1585. If you'll recall, I mentioned before that while Philip II is king of Spain, the state goes bankrupt five times, and this is one of those years. The soldiers aren't paid, and they rebel in the town of Antwerp. Because the army wasn't supposed to terrorize anybody, they were there to keep order and not interfere as long as the citizens work, pay their taxes, and are obeying the laws. But they started looting the entire city, and the Dutch retaliated by setting some of their own ships on fire and steering them into the Spanish vessels. So after the fall of Antwerp, over half of the population moves north to the province of Holland. 1588 is another leap year, and it is the year that the United Republic of Seven Provinces officially becomes the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Moving ahead a couple of years brings us to the 1590 capture of Breda, which is a town that had been protected by Spain for nine years with about 600 Italian and Spanish soldiers and is surrounded by a moat 
that leads to the Mark River. Maurice of Nassau, William the Silent's second oldest son and head of the Dutch army, orders a reconnaissance mission for one of his men, Charles de Hiragure, to check out weaknesses in the town of Breda. Hiragure planned to dress up as a fisherman to enter the town, but on his way in, he meets a Dutch loyalist who's bringing in a barge full of peat. The Netherlands has a bit of a swampy terrain, and there's peat everywhere, which at the time is used as fuel. Hiragure's Dutch comrade allows he and his men to hide beneath the peat on the barge, and they float right by the Spanish soldiers, unchecked, and make it all the way to the center of the city before retreating, still covered in peat. Hiragure reports back to Maurice, and they plan an attack for February 25th. Charles de Hiragure was to take about 70 men to the Mark River and wait there for backup. Meanwhile, Maurice of Nassau and a force of 1,700 would wait on land in the town of Willemstad, about 18 miles outside of Breda, until they got the signal. Everything goes according to plan, and Hiragure is, once again, able to enter the city undetected in his peat barges and sends the signal to Maurice, who starts marching towards Breda. And on the morning of March 4th, they come out from under the peat and took out 40 of the Spanish and Italians without losing one man. And when Maurice's army fronts the gates of Breda, the city is surrendered under the terms that each Dutch soldier be paid two months' salary. In exchange, the citizens could leave the city peacefully, regardless of religion, and those that wanted to stay would be unharmed and could keep their properties. Spanish authorities were so outraged by the Italian troops that they demanded that the three captains who were in charge of Breda be killed. Charles de Hiragure gets awarded a gold medal and is named the governor of Breda. And the bargemen who operated the peat boats were financially taken care of for life. Of course, the Spanish come back in 35 years to retake the city, and then the Dutch re-retake the city 12 years after that. In 1593, a botanist named Carolus Clusus plants tulip bulbs at the University of Leiden and finds that they thrive there, and the tulip quickly becomes a status symbol. We're now about the time in history that William Shakespeare writes Romeo and Juliet, 1596, and Dutch explorers have found the islands of Java and Sumatra. Sir Francis Drake dies on January 27th, and Philip William, remember William the Silent's eldest son, finally leaves Spain and returns to the Netherlands, where he is appointed Lord of Breda and Steenbergen. And things stay relatively quiet until October with the siege of Braidvoort. Now, Maurice of Nassau opposes his Catholic half-brother's claim in Breda, and he is winning territory left and right in Turnhout, Lingen, Goor, Inchede, Utmarsum, Moors, Alphen, Rainberg, and Ronlow. Braidvoort is protected by 200 French soldiers and is rumored to be impenetrable, standing in the middle of a swamp, which made marching and moving weapons to it difficult. Maurice of Nassau brings about 7,000 men through the swamps using a bridge of cork to transport artillery. So they float their big guns close enough to the wall to create a breach, enter the city, and loot for two days before making negotiations with Spain. It's technically a win for the Dutch, except one of Maurice's men accidentally kicks over a lantern into some hay while he's looting, and the whole city goes up in flames. Only 20 houses survive. It was not Maurice's intent to have the city destroyed, but he spins it into a warning for those who engaged the Dutch. And on September 11th of the same year, the Siege of Gronlow becomes another one of those Dutch wins that eventually goes back to Spain in a decade and is retaken by the Dutch two decades after that. The following year, 
Music is introduced to the Calvinist religious services in Zurich for the very first time, and Dutch sailors land on the island of Mauritius during an expedition to Indonesia and discovered what must have been the most delicious bird in the world, the dodo, and hunted them into extinction within 100 years. September 13th, 1598, Philip II dies of cancer. And a quick scattered curiosity, while he was suffering from cancer, his bowels had gotten so bad that they just cut a hole in the middle of the bed so that he could just do his business. Maybe that fact should have been edited out. (laughs) Maybe it still will be. Okay, moving on. In 1600, the Battle of Newport, the Dutch have 2,000 dead or wounded, and the Spanish have about 2,500 dead and 600 captured, so this one's kind of a tie. In 1601, Spain is now under the rule of King Philip III, and the Dutch are pestering Portuguese in Malacca, and the three-year siege of Ostend begins. And it is the lengthiest fight of the 80 years war and one of the longest and bloodiest in world history. More than 100,000 soldiers die on each side. And even today, more than 400 years after the siege, human remains are still being found on the site. In 1603, the Battle of the Sluice, Dutch win in two hours. Three years later, Guy Fawkes, a.k.a. Guido Fox, is executed for conspiring against Parliament with four others at the Duck and Drake Inn. See, he was fighting in the Eighty Years' War for Spain, and he was hoping to bring a Catholic uprising to England when he becomes aware of this plan to kill King James by putting a ton of gunpowder underneath the House of Lords. And there's an anonymous note that gets sent and has the British authorities on alert. And they find Guy Fawkes watching over the explosives. And he was questioned and tortured and hanged. And on Guy Fawkes Day, also called Plot Night and Bonfire Night in England, effigies of him are burned annually. But back to the Netherlands, Philip William is officially recognized as the Lord of Breda a title he will enjoy for the next dozen years, during which time he signs a 12-year truce with Spain. And now, we have come full circle, back to 1609, folks, with Henry Hudson exploring the Hudson Bay Valley, and the 80 Years' War is still going on while all of this is happening. Philip William dies without an heir in 1618, and is dubbed the Catholic Prince of Orange. Maurice of Nassau now gains the title of Prince of Orange, and the revolt is back on. The end of the 12-year truce between Spain and the Dutch comes in 1621, where the King of Spain is now King Philip IV. On June 3rd, the Dutch West India Company is established. In October... The Pilgrims in Plymouth, Massachusetts, have what is considered to be the first Thanksgiving with the Wampanoag tribe. And there is another Battle of Gibraltar. And the Dutch lose seven ships, while Spain only suffers damage to their flagship, Santa Teresa. Then there's another siege of Breda in 1624. And this battle is considered Spain's greatest success in the Eighty Years' War and one of the last major wins for Spain. The Dutch suffered 10,000 dead or wounded, while Spain only suffered 4,000. This was considered payback for the camouflage peat incident that happened in the previous siege of Breda. And this siege is depicted in the novel El Sol de Breda, The Sun Over Breda, by Arturo Perez Reverte, and also in the film A la Triste. On April 23, 1625, Maurice of Nassau dies during the siege, and his younger brother, Frederick Henry, becomes the next Prince of Orange. January 1627, South Australia is first seen by the Dutch ship De Guldenzeepart, England puts settlers in Barbados, 
and the Battle of Gronlo results in the Dutch victory where Spanish troops and citizens were allowed to leave the town peacefully and could take arms with them with a limit of two guns each. In a scattered curiosity, the Calaxis Church that's in Gronlo, which is still there today, has withstood all six of the sieges that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries. Reenactments of this battle are done every year and are called Slagomgro. 1628, the Battle of Matanzas, the Low Countries win again as the Dutch West India Company captures a Spanish treasure fleet. In 1629, the siege of Esser Tolkenbosch, a Dutch army captures a city that's part of the Spanish Netherlands, and a total of 28,517 cannonballs were fired. And can you imagine, in 1629, that's some serious firepower. After a run of victories in Venlo, Roermond, and Sittard, Frederick Henry leads the Dutch army to a win with the capture of Maastricht in 1632. Also happening this year, the Taj Mahal in India begins construction. In May 1635, France declares war with Spain, colonizes Martinique and Guadalupe, claims Dominica for itself, and becomes allies with the Dutch. And together, they raise a force of 18,000 men to go against some 2,000 Spanish in the upcoming siege of Breda in just a few years. Now we're up to the late 1630s and the middle of tulip mania, which results in the world's very first stock exchange. And what happened is people were starting to trade shares in tulip futures. You know, they're buying tulips for next year's harvest. But this is a country that's still in the middle of war and flooding itself every now and then. So, you know, that's kind of an uncertain market anyway. But check this out. The profits for a single bulb, for a single tulip bulb, could be 400%. So at the time, the most lucrative Dutch exports are gin, herrings, and cheese. And then right after that, the tulip bulb. At the height of tulip mania, for just one Viceroy tulip bulb, you could get 2,500 farthings. And that could buy you about 1,000 pounds of cheese, 2 tons of butter, 4 tons of beer, 12 sheep, a bed, and you'd still have 1,936 farthings left over. This is how crazy people were for tulips. And much like the American Stock Exchange, this one crashed as well. Frederick Henry reclaims Breda until the end of the war for the Dutch Republic in the 1637 Siege of Breda, which is the fifth and final Siege of Breda. Also in this year, the first opera house opens in Venice. The Battle of Kahlo in 1638 was a devastating defeat for the Dutch, who had 2,500 killed and 2,500 captured. Spanish officials called it the greatest victory which your majesty's arms have achieved since the war in the Low Countries began. The Battle of the Downs in 1639, this is a pretty famous one, with a pretty famous painting of it hanging in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. The Battle of the Downs results with the Dutch, English, and the French now in control of Spanish islands in the Caribbean. Now things are starting to wind down in 1645 with the Siege of Hulst, which is the last major siege of the Eighty Years' War. And the Dutch win in 28 days. Finally, in 1648, the Eighty Years' War is over. Now, to put that in perspective... 1609 is when the Dutch government sends out Henry Hudson to explore the Hudson Valley area. So, New Amsterdam and New York is established while they're still fighting this 80 years war. In 1648, on January 30th, independence from Spain is finally recognized. And Amsterdam and the Netherlands finally can govern themselves and continue to govern in their new prospect, in New Netherland, in New Amsterdam, up until the year 1664, when the Dutch finally cede 
New Amsterdam, and New Netherlands to the British, thus ending their official stay in America. But as you and I know, their permanence is forever. Ik zal handhaven. What a great idea. An interesting side note, um, earlier we talked about the city of Alkmaar. Now in 1799, the French captured the city of Alkmaar. And um, if you've ever heard of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, that capture of the city of Alkmaar is actually commemorated on the Arc de Triomphe. It's called Alkme. If you've made it this far, well, then we both deserve a pat on the back because we made it through the very first episode of this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing it. And if you have any feedback, I'd sure love to hear it. And if you did enjoy it, I certainly would appreciate any kind of review or stars or ratings that you could give us on iTunes, because as I'm sure you know, that greatly makes a difference. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show